Hi there, and welcome to the final edition of Inside Investing for 2018. I'm James Marley, and I'm from Livewire. And I'm Graham Hand from Cufflinks. This week, I'll be highlighting a few points on how Australia's future fund, our sovereign wealth fund, differs from the typical self-managed super fund. And I've picked out a report from EY that looks at what's happening with exchange-traded funds in Australia. I'll let you in on an entertaining conversation I had with Jeff Wilson, um, who shared with me his predictions. And I've also picked out what I thought was an excellent article from Andrew Fleming at Schroeder's and his, view, his views on Telstra, which was one of the real laggards in the top end of town in 2017. Yeah, Telstra, the number one holding um, of, of SMSFs. Yep. So a lot of people have not enjoyed this, uh, this fall. As always, um, we'll give you insights into some upcoming articles on both Livewire and uh, Cufflinks. And at the end, um, I want to make some points about the proposal to build a couple of stadiums in, in Sydney. Well, Graeme, let's get into it. You can kick us off. Um, tell us a bit about the Future Fund and how they're investing. Yeah, thanks, James. So it's very interesting to look at the Future Fund. They manage $138 billion now, but they are completely different than most other super funds and certainly different than self-managed super funds. So I think a lot of individual investors should look at what the Future Fund does and say, why am I different from them? Both are saving for the long term. In the case of the Future Fund, they have a target of CPI plus 4 to 5%, which is probably what a lot of retirees would be thinking about. But the big difference with the Future Fund is that they have about 15% of their assets in what you would call alternative assets, so uncorrelated to equity markets. 8% are in infrastructure and timber and a very high 12% in private equity. So if you add those up, you've got almost half the um, assets in the type of assets that SMSFs generally don't buy uh, at all. And the category that SMSFs hold most of, which is Australian shares, the Future Fund only has 6%. And the, the, the other part of the SMSF allocation um, is normally a lot in cash, and not very much in international equities. Now, one of the things people would say is, well, it's all very well for the future fund. You know, they've got $138 billion. They can find these alternatives. But really, if you look these days at um, a lot of fund managers and ETFs and unlisted activity, people can find a lot of these things, the type of things that the future fund is buying in alternatives and private equity and infrastructure that are available to the retail market. So it's interesting to look at the, the contrast between those two. I think the other thing there is that um, the first point I was gonna raise was around the availability of products. Yeah. But I think the next thing is the, under, the understanding and the awareness. And you and I, Graham, hear a lot about these products and the, the new offerings that are available to the market. It's one of the common complaints or troubles that you hear from SMSF investors is, how do I find this? Who do I trust? And there's a huge amount of time that goes into to finding out about what these new alternatives are. And just in terms of their sheer number, there's just not as many of them available and around. So I think yeah. that's, that, that, that it is, there is a, a real discovery process that people need to go through. Yeah, there's, a, there's an information gap there that people have, will have to put a lot, of, a lot of work into finding them. 
And James, you've had a chat with Jeff Wilson. Yeah, so it's that time of year where everyone's thinking about what the market might do next year. Now, of course, no one has any idea. It's the, it's the old dartboard, but that doesn't mean it can't be a bit of fun to have a chat about it. And I was speaking with Jeff, who's a, a really entertaining character, and I'd been reading a few of his comments that have been in the, in the paper, and he'd written a few articles talking about how he was really bearish right now, and that's what the headlines were. And so I, I, I pressed him, I said, gee, you're sounding a bit bearish at the moment. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you think that the market's going to finish down next year. And he said, well, I was actually at, the, at a broker lunch last week and they asked everyone in the room to put their predictions, write down their predictions, put them into a hat anonymously and, and we'll, we'll, we'll draw them all out and call them out. And he said he, his prediction for next year was that the, um, the ASX 200 would finish over 7,000. Right. Nice. So, so it's less than 6,000 now. It's less than 6,000 now. So he thinks it's a real tear away year next year so it was a bit counterintuitive um, for me given that he, he hadn't quite that bare a few and he said listen I, I've been through this many times before um, seen it before you never know when the right time to jump off is no one is no one will be able to tell you that but he said it feels like it's 4am at a really cracking party <laughs> and um, I'm there with my mate and we've just found the last bottle of champagne right and um, and we've said Let, let's um, let's pop the pop the cork on this one and, and, and give it the real, you know, sort of the final the final sprint. So I thought that was interesting to hear Jeff, who's been quite bearish, talk about how he thinks next year could be that, that big blow-off year. Did, did he say what it's like at 10 o'clock when you wake up with a hangover? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the problem with that. And, okay, that's good from Jeff, and, and you've also had someone talking about Telstra. Yeah, this was from Andrew Fleming, who runs... Um, alongside Martin Conlon at Schroeder's, runs their large cap strategy. And it was actually a chart, I, I think I saw it first on Cufflinks of all things, showing that the telco sector had been the, the real laggard yeah. this year. Worst performer, yeah. And Telstra's, um, it's a widely held stock, very topical. And it was some interesting information, um, you know, or a viewpoint that had come from Andrew after he'd attended the Telstra Investor Day. And he was saying how the management were, were trying to pitch this narrative that Telstra is now going to become a global technology company and no longer a, a, a telco business. And uh, you know, the point he said is it's understandable why they would want to pitch themselves like that. Technology stocks in Europe are up 20% for the year. In the US and Japan, they've rallied around 40%. And in emerging markets, the, the technology stocks have, have run about 60%. So there's obviously been this huge run up in these global tech shares, so very appealing to to pitch your businesses as one of those, but he said Telstra is a, it, it's not a technology, it's not a global leader in technology. It's a it's a you know a, a poor performing telco business, and he highlighted some really interesting peer comparisons around the ratio of sales to the the labour costs that these businesses run at. So for Telstra, um, their labour costs to sales are almost twenty percent, and when you compare that against TPG and Vocus, who are the smaller, more nimble. Um, operators in the market, they're around half that level. Right. Um, and he points out with um, Optus, which he thinks is probably a, a fairer comparison, Optus's costs to sales are almost 40% lower than those of Telstra. Right. The point he's making is that Telstra is pitching a narrative that they're capable of investing and changing their spots um, to try and get this whole new growth trajectory happening. And he's saying the market is just not buying it. And as a result, shares are down 30% through the past year. 
what he puts forward as a potential option, and he says there's a precedent that's been set with the likes of, of BHP and some of these other big cat companies, is that Telstra can go through this efficiency drive to strip out a huge amount of um, costs. And he thinks that a focus on efficiency could see Telstra generate $2 billion in extra EBIT. Um, and he believes that the, the, the catalyst for change w- could potentially come the inference is from, from shareholders and, and from activists, but the case is for Telstra is it's unlikely to become the next Google or Facebook or whatever it might be, and that it would be better served by stripping out costs and focusing internally on just doing things better. And, and so was he reasonably optimistic about buying Telstra? Uh, he, the impression I got was that he holds Telstra. It wasn't really an optimistic right. outlook. It was more a... Um, this no, is what just, they could do. This is the reality of the situation. Yeah. Um, the point that he made was that earnings per share growth for the past, let's call it 10 years, for Australian large caps has, has been at best mid-single digit. And inevitably the forecast for earnings growth at the start of any new year are always more optimistic and have to get paired back. So, you know, you look at what's happened with BHP, they've cut costs, focused on efficiency, and what he's saying is that um, Telstra looks like a real candidate. He also highlights Brambles as another candidate candidate for businesses that just need to focus on their efficiency to improve returns for shareholders. But it's a, I'll put the link, it, it covers the whole of the, the, the top end of the Australian market. It's a really, I thought it was a really good article and I think very relevant for people who are holding Telstra shares, as many people would be, um, that are down 30% on the year. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. Graham, you've got a, a piece from EY looking at the, the rise and the rise of ETFs. Yeah, we had this published last week and we linked to this full global ETF uh, report that uh, EY has done and then they have a section on, on Australia. I think most people would know about the uh, growth in passive investing versus active investing and a lot of that manifests itself through exchange traded funds. In, in 2011, so you know, only, only uh, six years ago, the passive funds had about 14% of the market, and EY is forecasting that within three years in 2020, they'll have um, 31% of the market, so more than double in that time. And obviously a lot of it is driven by the lower cost, but I, I think the other side of, of that that people overlook, if you, on ETFs is there's such an interesting range of ETFs available now and if anyone listening wants to know about the variety you could just go on to any of the ETF um, providers websites the people like Vanguard and, and BetaShares and, and uh, VanEck Van and, and BlackRock and and just see the tremendous range of things that you can do with your investing which are out of the ordinary I was talking about alternatives earlier and this is certainly a, a place that that offers that. But the Australian market uh, increased 39% last year, now at 33 billion. Uh, it's quite interesting to watch ETFs and listed investment companies rapidly growing together, almost the same size in the Australian market. So between the two of them now, they've got about $65 billion. Massive increase in the last five years, and now a serious part of our investing environment. Look, one thing that people do talk about with ETFs is that they haven't been tested in really difficult conditions. My view on that is it depends on the underlying instrument that the ETF holds. 
I think an ETF that holds, say, a large cap stocks, if, if there's a sell-off in the ETF, if people want, want the money back out of the ETFs, the underlying should be easy to sell in large cap. Where there may be some questions is something like an ETF that um, holds high yield or corporate bonds, where the secondary market in those isn't as good. And if, the mark, if you look at what happened in the GFC, the secondary market for some of those bonds virtually disappeared. So if you become a seller of the ETF, the ETF um, people behind the ETF will have to sell the underlying. So look, it's definitely part of the range of investment choices that people should have a look at and the future for the sector looks, looks very strong. Graeme, is it, uh, you know, with your own investing at ETFs, you obviously have a lot of exposure and you've done reading to it. Is it do, you, do you feel like they've got a, a, a practical application? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, you, you have the first advantage is that they are generally, they're inexpensive generally, particularly the passive ones. You can, you can get exposure to a, a large index for you know, less than 15 basis points, so it's cheap. There are a lot of active ETFs, so people shouldn't compare index equals ETFs. It doesn't. There are there are active ones, and you know there are some there that that um, I like. If you want to take a view on currency, um, if you want to sort of supercharge your portfolio, there are geared ETFs. There are sector specific ETFs if you want to go into food or energy, or the the one I personally like. Um, is one with uh, exposure to NASDAQ, NDQ is the, is the code. Uh, now it's run a long way, it started about two years ago at $10 and last time I saw it is about $14.50. But a lot of Australians haven't got exposure to you know, Facebook, um, Google, Apple, Microsoft and so this is a relatively easy way to get that sort of exposure, that's what ETFs can do. And liquid with those sorts of names in it as well? They should be fine with those sorts of names, yeah. Alrighty, what's, what's coming up on Cufflinks this week, right? Yeah, I've got a note uh, from Chris Cuff, um, obviously who's, who's my business uh, partner, but Chris is on the board of three prominent listed investment companies, so he sees a lot of things that happen with uh, licks, and these days there are about 100 licks listed on the ASX, this has become a big part of our market, but Chris is pretty critical of the way um, most licks report their performance. And I think this is quite an important paper because he really wants the industry start to start to report differently in a couple of ways. So it's worth taking a look at the detail of this. I'll just mention two things that he says. One is that remembering Chris comes from a managed fund industry. He's used to industries that look at the long-term performance of their fund, so they would report the fund um, over you know one year, three years, five years, ten years since inception, but a lot of the licks not only do they put out like a monthly report that just talks about that month, which really doesn't mean very much, but even some of the newsletters just talk about the last six or twelve months. So he said the first thing is you really need to that really needs to be built out so that people can get a better feel over the longer term because those short terms don't really mean much. Um, he also has a table in here that shows the difference between managed funds and lick reporting. It's too detailed for me to go over here, but it's quite interesting the things that some people do and don't talk about. But the second point I'll, I'll make is that he says that 
if you actually look at what a, someone who invests in a liquid in, uh, in, in, in a not a, in a listed investment company in a lick, they want to know what's the performance from the time when I bought it to what I could sell it for now. But the licks just report what's the underlying NTA of the assets, and that's quite a different picture. Um, if I'm an investor, uh, the and I, and I want to be able to sell, the NTA might be useless to me because there's a big difference between the price and the NTA. Now he's sort of throwing the gauntlet out to the industry here to, to change the way it reports. Quite a significant uh, change given that, as I said earlier, this is now you know, a, a $33 billion sector. It seems like the, the role of this would be for an independent to take it by the horns and someone to provide some independent reporting on the LICs because having had this conversation with a number of different managers, they all have a, a different reason or a case for why they report one way versus another. Yeah. And 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 it's it gets pretty murky and it's one of those things that you ne you, I never see, seem to get to the end of a conversation on this subject and get a resolution. Yeah, and, and unfortunately it means that it makes it difficult for investors to compare any two of these products. Well, having had a, a sneak preview of Chris's article, what it does do is it highlights what people, the ingredients, if people want to go and do some apples for apples, yeah. they can go and get that information themselves and Chris has sort of pointed out what they should be looking for. Yeah. Anyway, James, you've got a, um, a stock picking competition you can report on. We certainly do. It is um, this time of year, every year, we give our readers, LiveWire readers, the opportunity to put their skills up against those of a, a selection of fund managers, we call it our Outlook series, and we pick a number of topics, um, predictions, all, all a bit of fun. Um, where does the dollar go? Where does the index go? You know, what's the next move from the RBA, etc. And we also get our, our readers to nominate their top stock pick, picks, and we put the same set of questions to half a dozen fund managers. So this year we have Charlie Aitken, we've got Matt Haupt from Wilson Asset Management, Ben Clark, who gets invited back because he was our top stock picker from last year with his call on Altium, and it's um, pretty fun, high-paced content, but it, it definitely gets a few ideas out there. So that's coming up on, on Livewire. We track the performance of the calls throughout the course of 2018, and we get to see if our readers can beat the fund managers. And I can tell you for the 2017 year, our readers did a very admirable job. Their, their top picks returned 18%. Um, so out outperform the index but the, the fund managers their collective performance is is around 27 percent for the year so the fundies had a good year this year and i'm hoping our readers can step up and and maybe take the gong from them next year but we'll be putting that survey out over the next few days and then we'll be releasing those articles and the videos um, featuring all of the fund manager calls in early january so that's the start of our summer series and that's the big piece that's coming up okay. from, from livewire and maybe you get a fund of all of those predictions so people oh, can back it. It's, um, you know, it's been brought up many a time. It sounds like too, too, much, <laughs> too, much hard work. too much hard work. Not so much that, it's just, listen, it's meant to be a bit of fun. Right. Um, now, Graham, given that we can't talk about the cricket. <laughs> That's uh, James uh, revealing my Pommy accent. For forbidden topic. Um, you've got some views on the proposal for a redevelopment of the stadiums at Moore Park. Yeah, maybe this is a bit of a personal rave, uh, James, but I know in New South Wales this, is, this has become a massive political issue um, with 
you know, Peter Fitzsimons is running a, a, a campaign and um, it's got 145,000 signatures. So apologies to people interstate, but the proposal to spend 2.3 billion rebuilding um, the Sydney Football Stadium, otherwise known as Allianz, um, at Moore Park and the Olympic Stadium, which is only 17 years old, um, is causing a lot of angst among uh, people in this state. And my particular view comes from the fact that I'm an avid Sydney FC fan, so I go to one of these stadiums um, regularly. I never miss a Sydney FC home game. And they are, one of the principles that the government is saying is that if you build better stadiums, more people will come to the games. And I just do not believe that is true. And they haven't built, they haven't released a business case that proves that this is economically um, justified. And one of the points I make is that Sydney FC at the moment is an incredible team to watch. It is just fa a fantastic team. Last year they won the competition by 17 points. This year they're already 10 points clear. If people are not going to come and watch this excellent team, they're not going to come in decent numbers to a slightly better stadium. In any case, I think Allianz is a, a, a good stadium to watch the game from. I personally um, love where I sit. Um, look, I, I, I know this is, this is bordering on some of the personal, but just some of the crowd numbers. Um, I mean, I went to a game at Sydney FC a couple of weeks ago against Brisbane. 10,000 people turned up, right? Allianz holds 45,000 people. And if you think this is just a thing about soccer, last year the New South Wales Waratahs, so the, you know, the main rugby team in this state, had the lowest crowd for 21 years mm. at 10,500. And even the Sydney Roosters, so rugby league is clearly the most popular uh, football code in this state. The Sydney Roosters average at that stadium is 14,000 people. Yeah. So you're talking about a stadium that for nearly every game that's played there is um, lucky if it's, if it's got one third full. And the, the final thing I say is that if we vacate this stadium for three years, the teams have to go somewhere else. Where are you going to go um, that appeals to everyone in, in Sydney? I'm really worried that the teams might never recover from the loss of crowds. In the same way, Western Sydney Wanderers are having a problem at the moment, having moved away from Parramatta. Okay, so this is a big political issue, $2.3 billion. Um, this has got a lot of, of, got a lot to play out before these two stadiums are built. But James, you're saying you live near one of them. Yeah, I live in Redfern, so, you know, I think the proximity of, the, of, of Allianz is, is just amazing. I go to watch um, the Rabbits play at the footy stadium. Um, if I get invited along, sometimes I go to the Waratahs. I think from a, a viewing perspective, the stadiums are, are, are fabulous. And I think, I know there's a huge amount of work going on in the area as it is, and, and um, that's, a, that's a bit disruptive. From my perspective, the stadiums are perfectly serviceable. They've done this great little upgrade that allows you to walk from Surrey Hills through the parks to get over so you can go to a restaurant and all that sort of stuff. And when I use the stadiums, I never really have any issues other than what you pointed out, which is that the beer is expensive and, <laughs> and, and, and average and the meat pies are, are are, are, are lukewarm and, um, and pretty average as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't think that you can fix the food with having to, without having to rebuild the stadium. Yeah. Um, so this one's got a lot, a, lot, a lot to play out on this one yet.
Well, Graham, this is um, going to this is the end of our little experiment. This was our our um, our intro into podcasting. We thought we'd we'd give it a go. Six episodes in 2017. This is uh, where we're going to wrap it up for the year. And so, Graham and I would like to wish all the people who have tuned in a um, a fabulous Christmas and and festive period. And we really appreciate you tuning in and to all those people who have sent through their comments and feedback. We appreciate that as well. Um, and I think we haven't set an exact date yet, Graham, but we're, we're planning on catching up in the new year and, and, and having a bit more of a blast on the, um, on the podcast. Yeah, look, that's, it's been great fun. Um, we, we said we would uh, do it for the rest of the year and see how we went. We got a lot of great feedback. Um, thanks very much for people for listening. And we, in, in some format, we'll have another go next year. Thanks very much. Have right. a great Christmas. Mm.